Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23 and coming at you from the great state of Texas. Texas. Welcome to another edition of Bridge Radio. Abe, we are on episode number 62. Can you believe that? Wow, yeah. We've we've come a long ways. <laughs> yeah, that's been uh yeah, that's been a pretty long journey. It and has. It, but it seemed like it hasn't been that long and it, it hasn't, does. but it hasn't. but that's a lot of podcasts, sixty two. Yeah. We're rolling around. Excited to see what uh, happens in the new year. This is actually gonna be our last episode for two thousand and eighteen, and we will be back with you January eleventh with uh Champ Thornton. He's the author of the book Radical Books, book for kids. It's uh it's it's not just a book for kids, I'm telling you, Abe, it's it's a book for even adults like us. There's some really good good stuff about that. And so I think we're going to talk with him about uh, just the reform perspective of uh, discipling kids, mm. especially from a reform perspective. That's awesome. And so, yeah, it's going to be great discussion. So please be tuned into that. And just a warning, uh, next week and the following week, there will be no episodes. Yeah, we'll say bye-bye to 2018. And God willing, we'll see uh, 2019. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm your host, Julio Mad Rodriguez. And uh, again, with me is my co-host, who was just speaking, Abe Varilla. And uh, we are the Christian podcast that, that brings on the world's top Christian apologists, theologians, and scholars to not only discuss theology, but also engage uh, the culture of today through a Christian worldview. And you can find us on iTunes, Android, Windows, Google Play, and also find us at our Bridge app that is now available across all app stores. So simply type in Bridge Ministries, you will see our logo, our slogan, which says Coffee and Good News, and there you could find expository sermons through uh, books of the New Testament. Right now we're still building that library, uh, but also our apologetics conference is up there. Some mm. good stuff from Matt Slick, Eli uh, Ayala, Eric Hernandez. Um, good lectures there. And then also, too, you can find uh, lectures, I mean, not lectures, articles on uh, Christian faith and practice devotionals and much more. So so anyway, guys, let's go ahead and get into the topic today. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to, for this topic. I, mm. I find it very interesting, especially some of the reading that, that I've been doing. Um, but uh, today's topic, we're going to be engaging with Roman Catholicism. And at the beginning of the year in June, in, in January, when we kicked off uh, uh, 2018, we started off with a series on the five solas, which is uh, Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, and Sola Deo Gloria. And uh, the five solas summarize the soteriological convictions of the reformers against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And also, which was just a couple of weeks ago, Abe, we had Dr. Michael J. Kruger on. Uh, he's the scholar and author of Canon Revisited and Heres- the Heresy of Orthodoxy. And he came on to discuss canon and the battle of authority between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. And today, I'm really excited to have with us uh, uh, someone who, uh, who's who been a blessing, especially in a, in a documentary that, that, that he presented. But specifically, our topic today is going to be engaging with Rome, specifically uh, when it comes to their claim of unanimous consent of the Church Fathers. So mm. with us for this discussion is Jason Wallace. He's pastor of Christ of Christ Presbyterian Church, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Magna, Utah. He is also the producer of multiple films, one of which we will be discussing titled An Earnest Plea to Roman Catholics. Thank you, Pastor Wallace, for joining us today. It's my privilege, Julio. Yeah, thanks. thank you so much for just taking your time out of the day. I'm sure you're busy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great to be with you. I, I, I kind of wanted to, to talk at the very beginning of the program, a little bit about uh, your experience uh, with setting up some debates uh, back in the '90s, I believe, with uh, Roman Catholic apologists um, that were that are from Catholic Answers with Dr. James White, who's been on the program before. Uh, mm. can, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We 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 started as a church plant in 1998 uh, here in, in Salt Lake uh, mm-hmm. City area. And uh, we did a lot of outreach through evangelistic book tables, things like this. And that introduced us to Dr. James White. And uh, he was coming up here twice a year at the time. And so getting to know him, knowing his his ability to debate, we've started arranging debates between him 
Uh, the first one was actually between him and a converted uh, a Baptist pastor who converted to Roman Catholicism. Wow. Uh, Don Schaefer. And then, of course, most of the debates were with Mormons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started, we, we realized that we could get some big names in, in Catholic apologetics to come uh, to debate him. Uh, some that had been with Catholic answers but had fallen out with them. Uh, Robert Genis and Jerry Maddox, uh were two of the, the big names that we had come here to debate Dr. White. And so James has done probably around a dozen debates for us over the years. Unfortunately, uh, situations changed. Um, the guys down at what was then known as Farms, uh, the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies down at uh, BYU University, mm-hmm. um, they put out the word, no more debates. Okay. Uh, James, James, James was dominating yes. all of these things. <laughs> and um, the, the last debate we did, uh, he debated a philosophy professor mm-hmm. uh, from uh, Utah Valley University, and a Mormon came up afterwards and said, please don't do these anymore. <laughs> we don't have any, you know, he, he was convinced Mormon, but he said, we, have, we don't have anyone who can do this. Right. But essentially, the, the caliber of people that we've been able to get in the past dried up. And, uh, you know, if we tried to arrange something, the person would agree only to, when we announced it, he would receive a phone call and cancel on us. Hmm. Um, but um, plus, it, it became next to impossible for James to, to do anything during general conference when he was coming up here. Hmm. Uh, the LDS general conference is twice a year. Right. Uh, street, street preachers made it a circus down there, and um, it, it's a long story. But but basically, when James left the picture, I realized that I'm not a debater, but I could defend the faith with these guys uh, mm-hmm. you know, that would debate. And so I took on some more of the pop uh, apologist, you know, the popular apologist for, for Mormonism. Mm-hmm. That led to... Um, being able to do a, a weekly television program, a live call-in show on the uh, on a local Christian UHF station. Okay, and so we did that for seven and a half years, and uh, it was funny. The, the owners were big Benny Hinn fans, but they let me on. So <laughs> that's, that's um, interesting. But, that's great. I'm not sure what that says about me, but uh, <laughs> but, it, but um, they sold the station. Um, a few years ago, about three years ago, I guess. And so when that was no longer an avenue, we we realized that there was a great need for instruction, but um, something that wasn't the talking head kind of thing, more of a documentary style. Sure. That, try, that tried to, to crystallize a lot of these things that you hear in the debates that Dr. White does and others. And um, there, there wasn't a whole lot to sort of bridge that gap between, you know, the very basic stuff and the the, the, the very narrowly focused debates, and so we we made an earnest plea to Latter Day Saints two and a half years ago, and uh, we've made eight videos altogether for Mormons. Uh, they're all at LDS video. Uh, we did a, a video called an earnest plea to gay Christians, which is at gaychristian.video. It's response mainly uh, to Matthew Vines and the arguments of the gay Christian movement, and then back in June we released uh, an earnest plea to Roman Catholics, and that's at RomanCatholic.video. Yeah, and, and and just about the the debates with James White, that, that guy is such a great skilled debater. Oh yeah, um, just oh, he's he, he, force of nature. Yes, I mean he, I've I've lo- just listening to him, especially during cross examinations, like my logic gets better. Like my just, <laughs> yeah. I feel like my IQ just goes up. But just anybody who's who's never heard of James White or the great debates that were set up, uh, James White has an awesome line of debates uh, against uh, Catholic answers apologists. Um, I mean, he took on the best of the best, and he just steamrolls them. Um, and I, I believe there's about nine or ten. But please go check that out, along with um, an earnest plea to a Roman Catholic. And so I. I I want to ask you, uh, uh, Pastor Jason, what was the uh, the uh, response since the release of the of the documentary? It's been good. We we haven't had 
the the time and the resources to really promote it a, a great deal. We've we promoted uh, an earnest plea Latter Day Saints more, and we've had about one hundred twenty three thousand views on that. Okay. And um, the Catholic video, we had about a thousand views in the first twenty four hours. Um, it tapered off after that. I think we're around five or six thousand okay. uh, views since we released that uh, a few months ago. And we're going to try to promote it a little more. Okay. You know, make people aware of it. But um, received an email last week from a guy that was thanking me for it. He said that for 20 years he was a zealous convert to Roman Catholicism, but through uh, James White's dividing line and through our videos, uh, he has now left that behind and has uh, joined a Bible-believing Presbyterian church. Awesome. Wow. Praise God. Praise God. So, um, yeah, so let's go ahead and get into it, the unanimous consent of the church fathers. Uh, I've heard this quote by John Henry Cardinal Newman. It's a famous saying. Uh, I, Roman Catholics will, will often quote it, but it goes like this. Uh, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. In other words, when you look into church history or the history of Christianity, you will quickly realize that Protestantism is false. So one of the many claims Rome makes is that she has unanimous consent of the church fathers. Pastor Wallace, what does Rome mean by unanimous consent? Sure. Uh, one, one thing before that I, I should have mentioned, um, sure. one, part of the feedback to the video, uh, there's a Catholic priest who's actually been talking a great deal with us who uh, has said, I long to know the Jesus you preach. Hmm. And so wow. um, I'm encouraged. In, in terms of unanimous consent, um, I'm, I'm not a great historian in terms of uh, a lot of the, the finer details. I know that the term was prominently used at the Council of Trent against uh, the Protestant Reformation. This is, this is the response uh, to, to the Reformation. Rome said you cannot interpret the Bible contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers. Mm-hmm. And of course, what they were doing is they were setting themselves up as the arbiters of what that consent was. Well, the reality is there's not a unanimous consent. And where there is consent, it's not to what Rome teaches. You, you go through and you find that Rome has drifted, like the Pharisees drifted, uh, from what the Bible taught more and more into their traditions, the same thing you see in Rome. And they tend to read their church fathers through a set of glasses where they're imposing meanings that on text that when you actually read them in context, that's not what they're saying at all. And so to a great extent, you're do, they're doing the same thing that the medieval Catholics did in terms of uh, Peter Lombard's sentences had excerpts from the church fathers. And you know, it's like, here are proof texts from the fathers for these various doctrines. Huh. And the reality is when you go back through and actually study the church fathers, you find out that there's there's not there's not the, unit, the unanimity, but also where there is consent, it's often contrary to, to what Rome teaches and in line with what the reformers taught. And that seems like it seems like that happens a lot when we're we're talking about Catholicism and just the contradictions from what uh, the Bible says versus what the Church teaches, the Catholic Church teaches. You know, I was just ta- I was just telling Julio, I was talking to my mom, and I was asking her the question. You know, she grew up Catholic, and um, uh, when she met my dad, and um, my dad was just uh, they were dating, and my, um, my mom had just come out of Catholicism but was still learning. And when my dad was just pointing her to scripture, she's like, scripture, this is not what Rome teaches. Like, hmm. this is totally different. Right. And, and she was, her eyes was just open. God opened her eyes to truth as she was, you know, growing in her faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just to go off a little bit about what uh, Pastor Jason Wallace was talking about, about the Council of Trent, I have right here in front of me, which is the second decree, and it's about the unanimous consent of the fathers. And I'll just go ahead and read it, just so that way I'm actually quoting from the Council of Trent. But it says, Furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, the Council decrees that no one relying on his own skill shall, in matters of faith and of morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, arresting the sacred scriptures to his own senses, 
presuming to interpret the said sacred scriptures contrary to that sense which Holy Mother Church, who it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and does hold, and even contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers, even though such interpretations were never to be at any time published. And and and, and uh, Pastor Jason, I mean, in essence, what that is saying is that the church interprets scripture for you and gives you the understanding. Am, am, am I correct? Right, right. The, Rome will say that they hold a three, uh, three bases of, of authority, uh, sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium of the church. But who is the only infallible interpreters of sacred scripture? Mm-hmm. It's the magisterium. Uh-huh. Who, who, who's the only uh, definer of sacred tradition, the magisterium. Uh. And so at every turn, it's the um, magisterium that is the authority, not the scriptures, not even tradition. They, they pick and choose what they like from both. But instead of sola scriptura, you have sola ecclesia. Yeah. Um, yep. That is the church alone. And you know, when the apostles wrote to the churches, they were writing to fallible churches to correct them. And mm-hmm. Rome turns all that on its head. The church corrects the reading of the of the scriptures, not not the other way around. That's part of the reason they have to claim this unanimous consent. They have to present the church as infallible. Where or who in church history can we point to and say, look, this is solid evidence against Rome's claim to unanimous consents of the church fathers? Well, there's numerous examples, but I mean, the one we start with in the video is Athanasius. Mm. Uh, He was Bishop of Alexandria. Athanasius rejected not only church councils, but also the Bishop of Rome Mm. and stood on the scriptures against what uh, the church uh, in terms of Rome and, and church councils were teaching. Many people, they'll watch the Da Vinci Code or some other nonsense, and you know, they have this idea that Jesus was made God at the Council of Nicaea, and Constantine banished uh, Arius and everything. Uh, you know, this, this is the imperial religion from here on out. That's so far from the truth, it's hard to, to know where to start. Mm-hmm. Now, we try to go through it in the film, but basically, uh, Constantine was a politician. He had, he had just the year before the Council of Nicaea put down his rival in the East and consolidated his control over the whole Roman Empire. And so when there's trouble, he wants to to head it off. He calls this council. 316 out of 318 bishops are in support that Jesus, you know, even even Arius was calling Jesus God, but he um, was trying to redefine he wasn't of the same essence or substance as as the father. So council comes out against Arius. Arius is exiled temporarily, but like most heretics, what he did is he he reworded his teaching, and he played to the emperor, and before you know it, he's put back into his position. And Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, had died between the council and that, and basically within 10 years of the Council of Nicaea, you have Athanasius standing against the teachings of Arius, and uh, he ends up being exiled. Arius is restored. Uh, He dies soon after, but uh, Athanasius is exiled for standing for the the position of of Nicaea. And the... um, Constantine didn't want there to be trouble, and then as now, people who stand for the historic biblical faith are often seen as troublemakers. And so Athanasius was exiled, and uh, a couple of years later, Constantine dies, Constantius takes his place mm-hmm. as emperor. He's wholeheartedly behind the area, and uh, St. Jerome described it later. Uh, that the world groaned and found itself Aryan. You know, basically, the Aryans took over the visible church right. to a great extent. And as part of their power politics, anyone who opposed them was exiled. 
from their position. And so Liberius, the, the Bishop of Rome, was exiled. And you'll hear Roman apologists make up things that there's not really great historical evidence for. He was tortured, all these various things. And um, long story short, Liberius capitulates. And as part of the price of him being able to go back to Rome, he had to denounce Athanasius. And so he condemned him, basically declared him outside of the Catholic Church. Uh, Athanasius tried to be conciliatory even in that, but the the Arians called church councils and uh, condemned the language of Nicaea. Okay. Mm-hmm. Athanasius, Athanasius stood against all of it, and you have this period uh, that's that's often known in Latin as Athanasius Contramundum, Athanasius against the world. Mm-hmm. And you read what he said, and it's the teaching of Scripture that was the test. He didn't reject the authority of the Church, but he understood that the Church was fallible. You You have people who are not very well grounded in Scripture or history who... They think that there's this antithesis between tradition and, and Scripture. Uh, the Protestant Reformers did not see tradition as hostile. They saw tradition as a mixed bag. There's good and there's bad. Hmm. They saw it as, as a testimony of how previous generations had read the same Scriptures. And since they held to the perspicuity of Scripture, the idea that Scripture is clear and that the Holy Spirit is speaking by and with the scriptures. They took comfort that they were reading it in much the same way of generations before them. But the scriptures alone are infallible. And so um, Athanasius, he he stands firm. Ultimately, he's vindicated. Rome ends up embracing the faith they denied. And Athanasius is now known as uh, the father of orthodoxy. How did he defend, you know, how did he stand for orthodoxy against the Pope and against councils? And own scripture. Just, just to just to take a, a couple of steps back, uh, especially for those who aren't familiar with with church history, and then we'll, we'll come back to that last point that I that I want to touch on. But um, what exactly happened at at the Council of Nicaea, especially with that feud between um, Arius? Uh, you, you mentioned that Arian, Arianism. Uh, pretty much taught that Jesus was somewhat divine, but not in the same sense as the Father. So, so, so some on, on the podcast who, who are unbelievers and maybe don't have their doctrine quite, you know, correct, why would why would that be uh, an issue if uh, Jesus is not uh, in the same essence of the Father, sort of like a demigod? Well, what we do is we try to take it through historically and give people a, a big picture mm-hmm. of cutting to the chase, if if the creator of everything, the one whom the holy angels had to cover their faces in his presence, if he's the one that was hung naked on the cross for sinners, then God is holy beyond our imagination. Our sin is far worse than we ever want to admit. Grace is also greater than we would ever dream. But sinful men don't want God on the cross, on not suffering. And so you see, even during the time of the apostles, there were people who tried to play that down. Um, you have in first and second, uh, the first and second epistles of John, him dealing with people who were trying to define, Je- define God off the cross. Uh, they said that Jesus was truly God, but he didn't come in the flesh. Okay. And there's a couple of different factors there. One is they didn't like the whole, they wanted to be pure spirit. But the other thing is that um, if he's not truly flesh, he's not really suffering. And uh, John says, whoever teaches this is an antichrist. And the church is not to show hospitality to them. They're not to uh, help them as brothers in Christ. Uh, they're antichrist. So John essentially, you know, the Lord through John draws a circle clearly defining orthodoxy that you, you have to admit to the humanity of Christ. Well, then what you do is, if you don't want to admit that God is the one who really suffered there on the cross, then um, you begin to say, okay, well, he was human, but he wasn't really God. Correct. And you have, you have adoptionism. 
in the third century with um, Paul Samosata and others basically saying that um, he was truly human, but he was adopted at his baptism or adopted at some point. Hmm. And he's an adopted son of God. He's not truly God. Right. Well, the the church deals with that. And so the, the circle gets drawn more clearly that he's truly God. He's he's truly God, he's truly man. But still there's this temptation to downplay what took place at Calvary. And so you see this temptation from Origen uh, through Lucian to to, uh, Arius. And it keeps getting repackaged in more palatable ways. You know, trying, trying to deal with the same temptation, but to stay within the, the bounds of what's been defined as orthodox. Hmm. So by the time you get to Arius, Jesus is God, but maybe sm- in, in English parlance, a small G God. Sure. And so um, in, in the modern example of Arianism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they, they are very clear about why they uh, don't want Jesus on the or Jesus is God on the cross. They say it would be inequitable because he's only suffering for Adam's sin. Huh. They say he's the archangel Michael, and it's a perfect man suffering for uh, one man. Huh. Well, I need I need I need more than just to be released from from Adam's sin. I need to be released from my own. Sure. Yeah. And so. Um, when, when you when you define down Jesus, you define down the holiness of God, the seriousness of sin. You define down the, everything in the gospel. Uh, the gospel is a stumbling block. People don't want to admit that God's that holy and their sins are that bad. So, uh, just just to recap what you had said prior prior to what you just said here, um, we have um, evidence of a Pope of Rome or the the, the Bishop of Rome holding to Nicene faith, which would be considered as viewing uh, the, both the Father and Jesus Christ as both equal with God. And uh, we can see that in Philippians 2, 5 through 6, which says, Jesus Christ, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So there, there is a sense, and then even John 1, 1, right, Abe? I mean, mm-hmm. would even equal, there's, there's yeah. a lot of verses that you could go to to yeah. prove this. So the, 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 what, what I just want to get clear to our audience is that you do have, uh, at one point, Pope Liberius holding to that, which would be considered the Nicene faith, both the Father and the Son being equal. And then you also have him being exiled, then coming back in and holding to Arianism, which is a heresy. Am I correct? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it's it's a, some would define it as semi-Arianism because it's been it's been repackaged a bit. Okay. But the um, but long according to I think it was Sozomen, um, I mean, Catholics tend to down, to to spin this hard, um, but numerous church historians uh, that were contemporary and, and and soon after report what happened. I think it was Sozomen who said that um, Liberius actually denounced not just Athanasius as an individual, but also condemned the language of uh, the Nicene Creed. Ah, okay. Yeah, and that's a point that I want to hit on, and that's that's maybe the main crux of this podcast, and to sort of just blow away the concept of unanimous consent of the Church Fathers, is you have a Pope condemning what would be today considered orthodoxy, and, and what kind of do you do with that? Um, and so, yeah, just like you said previously, Rome at one time embraced... Uh, or em- embraces a teaching that they once denied. Why, why is that such a, an issue, um, uh, Pastor Wallace? Well, for them. Rome has to. Yeah, uh, Rome will say that popes are sinners, but when they speak ex cathedra, when they speak from the chair of as bishop of the whole church, that they are infallible. And to a great extent, the crux of the issue in the Protestant Reformation was authority. Who speaks for God? The Protestant Reformers recognized that church councils and bishops 
contradict one another. The scriptures don't. Mm-hmm. Jesus, Jesus' appeal was to scripture against the traditions of the, of the church of his day. Uh, yeah. Tradition was fallible, uh, but the scriptures are the word of God. They're the God's, you know, they're, they're God breathed. And, you know, I doubt we'll have time to get into this. You have not only Liberius denouncing the Nicene Council, but you end up with an ecumenical council, the Second Council of Constantinople, denouncing a pope, Pope Honorius, as a heretic. Hmm. And, and we, we cover this in the video. You've got popes declaring other popes heretics. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pope, pope Formosus. Pope Formosus was dug up a year after he died. He was put on trial as a corpse. And he was condemned, and he uh, had the vest- his papal vestments torn from his body. They cut off the three fingers he used for consecration. They dragged his body uh, through the streets of Rome. Wow. All on the orders of his successor as pope. Uh, you have... Popes um, calling, uh, making very clear that that their predecessors were not infallible. Hmm. I mean, most people, a whole lot of people, don't understand that papal infallibility was not an official dogma of the Catholic Church until the First Vatican Council hmm. in eighteen seventy. Hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it was implicit to some degree that the Church was infallible, but to some extent. Rome just keeps backing itself more and more into a corner that they're the infallible standard. Well, when the infallible standard has popes and councils denouncing each other, yeah. how do you hold infallibility? How do you hold it to authority? Yeah. yeah you, you almost don't know if a pope was really a true pope until many years later, <laughs> yeah, depending right. on the pope that's in your lifetime. I mean, am I, am I right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you... At one point, you had three different. I mean, well, even even before this, I mean, that was um, the Pope in I think it was the 14th century moved the papacy to Avignon, and you end up with competing popes at Avignon, Rome, and Pisa. So two in Italy, one in France. But you go back to the early history of the Church, and you find out that the title of Popum or Pope wasn't just for the Bishop of Rome. It was given to all bishops. It, uh, the, the clergy in Rome referred to Cyprian. Uh, I believe it was uh, in the in the third century as Popham. Mm-hmm. Uh, Athanasius was known as Popham. Okay. And of course, you know, a monarchical uh, bishop was even in even in the sense they had it then in the 4th century, uh, was, was an innovation itself. You know, you begin with the plurality of elders. Mm-hmm. Basically, the, the Reformation makes sense when you understand that it's the response to the deformation of the Church. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. You know, going back to, to another point that, that we just talked about is that you have Athanasius um, going up against popes, councils, tradition, by using Scripture. And though... We wouldn't call it sola scriptura. You do see the kind of catalyst of it in in the argumentation from the scriptures over and against um, popes, councils, and and, and and tradition. So, I mean, if Athanasius was to was alive today, uh, Pastor Wallace, wouldn't he be condemned as a heretic and maybe excommunicated oh, yeah. as well? I mean, that's another big hole well, that you see. Right, right. I mean, well, he was in his own day. He was he was excommunicated sure. um, as a heretic. By Liberius, uh, Liberius gets overturned uh, by his successor. But uh, Athanasius taught things such as on the canon. He denied the canonicity of the Apocrypha. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was uh, that position that he shared with the Protestant reformers was anathematized at Trent. Wow. Well, you know, Catholics, of course, will spin it. Well, he was submit. It hadn't been defined yet, so he wasn't in rebellion. Uh, he, he also he he also taught a view of the Lord's Supper 
that it sounds an awful lot like what Calvin taught over a millennium afterwards, that we truly feed on Christ, but spiritually. Hmm. Not, it's, it was nothing like this transubstantiation. Well, Trent sure. says, unless you hold to the bread ceasing to be bread and the wine ceasing to be wine, then um, you're anathematized. And so Rome has anathematized the consent of the fathers. Right, which is you know, which is a great point to make. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, their their argument is that, you know, that to some extent they don't. They realize that they can't pretend for very long that uh, the things that they do today are anything like the early church. But they they say that it's it's like an egg an acorn grows into an oak tree. And what we document in the video is that you go from a very simple Christ-centered gospel to this elaborate sacramental system with Mary rivaling, if not supplanting Jesus as the focus of their devotion. Hmm. And, you know, it's nothing like biblical Christianity. It's nothing like historic Christianity either. It's like the traditions of the Pharisees, they tradition has begotten tradition that's begotten tradition. Yeah, and it's hard to find what's real underneath all the barnacles. Sure. Yeah. When uh, you know uh, Julio and I um, were down here in South Texas, I mean, it's predominantly Roman Catholic, yeah. and we see that just tradition, um, uh, as you were just mentioning, the the Virgin Mary and 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 how everybody just I, I, I'm not trying to make fun of it but um, just like the things that you see down here like I mean they'll see like a piece of toast that looks like the Virgin Mary and we'll be quickly to put it on side and look and then it's just start worshiping that it, mm-hmm. it's like just absolutely nonsense but yet people believe this lie and and it's it's it, it it was just very eye-opening to me since um, I moved down from Chicago. Um, uh, you know, I went from a very liberal city down to, you know... Conservative uh, Texas. Conservative, conservative Texas, like, um, and then just very, uh, very, very Catholic. And, um, and, and yeah, that was just real surprising to me how just the deception of, uh, of Roman Catholicism is with, with all that. I had a quick question uh, for you, Pastor Wallace. How well do you think in your studies that know that the popes know scripture? Or they themselves, <laughs> them, I mean, did they, did they, was it just like, <laughs> you know, did they just like, they just relied on their tradition and really didn't care about scripture and just said all these things because, you know, it, 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 it was what it was? Or did they have other people just teaching them? I know there's a lot of political things that were going on during that, during that time for a long time because of power. But do you know how well they knew scripture? Oh, some of them, I mean, you go through the history, a lot of these men, I don't know that they could read, much less know Scripture. Wow. Um, you go through the papal pornocracy. That's you have, you have um, well, I mean, Leo X, who excommunicated Martin Luther, he was made a cardinal at the age of 13 hmm. in return for a deal for his older brother to marry the Pope's illegitimate daughter. You have, according to the Bishop of Cremona, you have the mistress, um, back before this, during the papal pornocracy, you have uh, the mistress of two different popes having one of them killed to be replaced by her son, by the other one. Um, In more, more recent history... Pope Pius IX is the one who declares the uh, Immaculate Conception of Mary in 1854. He makes the statement there, All our hope do we repose in the most blessed virgin, in the all-fair and immaculate one who has crushed the poisonous head of the most cruel serpent and brought salvation to the world. And what he's, wow. what he's appealing to there is that in the old Vulgate, they have a translation um, 
that uh, from from the Hebrew to ipsa, uh, which is feminine. Uh, the, the 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 woman the the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Mm. Well, of course, in the Hebrew, it's a bad translation. Uh, the modern Vulgate has it properly that it's ipsum, which is uh, neuter. It's the seed of the woman bruises the head of the serpent, not not the woman. Mm. But you 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 look at a lot of the statuary and paintings of the Virgin Mary. And she's crushing the head of the serpent. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is the very this is the proto evangelion. This is the uh, right. the proto gospel. If you get this wrong, it's really hard to get anything else right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah wow. the seed, it's the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head, not Mary, not the woman, and especially not Mary. And so, um, but, you know, they spin it. And most Catholic apologists believe that a strong offense is better than a strong, is better than a strong defense. So they typically just attack. And it's like, well, what about you and your 46,000 denominations? Yeah. Yeah. And they spin. And... Unfortunately, within Protestantism has devolved into pietism, mm-hmm. where people, to a great extent, don't care whether things are true in any objective sense. It's true for them. It's experiential. And these doctrines of the Reformation, they may have some passing knowledge, but they really don't understand them and have never have no desire to understand them. They set themselves up. If you if you listen to Call to Communion or any of these other um, Catholic programs that mm-hmm. celebrate these converts, and many of them coming out of Reformed churches, no less. You know, it's not yeah. just Pentecostals and Baptists. It's sometimes even OPC people. Yeah. Uh, I went to Gordon Conwell, where you've got Scott Hahn, Jerry Manitick, Steve Wood, and a whole host of others uh, that all converted to to Rome. Yeah. Well, the sad reality is. They tend to view there's the apostles, there's a lot of stuff in between that they don't really know that much about, and then there's them. And the idea that previous generations have read these scriptures and bled and died for them. Yeah. Yeah. If they've, they've lived the gospel out, is novel to them. And the idea that the Protestant reformers were not hostile to all tradition, but John Calvin quotes. I think it's over 850 times. I know it's over 800. Uh, in his final edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he quotes from the Church Fathers around 850 times. Mm-hmm. To me, to me, one of the hallmarks of the Reformation was the colloquy of Lausanne, which you almost never hear about. Calvin goes to hear someone else do a disputation with the Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic shows up. The other person doesn't. Calvin basically, off the top of his head, fills in. And this guy's quoting from Peter Lombard's sentences. From memory, Calvin takes those same quotations and gives the whole context and shows that they're not teaching what Rome taught. Or if they are in agreement with Rome, they're contradicted by numerous other fathers. And um, there's a a book called, I think it's uh, John Calvin student of the, uh, of the Church Fathers or something like that by uh, Lane, if my, if my memory serves me. Our whole plea in apologetics has been no one has anything to fear from the truth. Sure. Hmm. But, but most people don't want to look at the truth. They want to look for excuses not to hear the other side. And, you know, we can take tradition and lay it out on the table and see it for what it is. We lay scripture out and see it for what it is. God has spoken and God has preserved his word. Amen, amen. Um, going going back to 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 Mary, Pastor Wallace. I have, I have a quick question. Um, just in the fact that a whole entire dogma is based on a false interpretation. Or, I'm sorry, not interpretation, false translation. Um, what do you believe in the future is going to become of the Marian dogmas? Um, do you think they're going to elevate um, her to deity, or you know, what, what what do you think that looks like? Well, I mean. You had Mother Teresa and a host of others that were pushing for her to be declared a co-redeemer 
And wow. It, it's, it's a, uh, John Paul II sure seemed to be leaning that way before he died. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but the trajectory is very much towards making Mary more and more of the focus. And so yeah. I wouldn't be surprised that they declared her a co-redeemer. I don't think they'll ever officially declare her um, co-deity. Sure. But but you you look at the um, the gushing of praise towards her, mm-hmm. and um, you know the, the 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 handmaid of the Lord has um, the, the humble handmaid of the Lord has become the queen of heaven. Yeah. Uh, the highly favored. Uh, this is uh, going back to uh, Schaff. Uh, Mary, the highly favored, has become the dispenser of favors. She's she's the, the the real focus, and you know the Catholic Church, like the Mormons, you know every so often they'll do something to play up Jesus. But you can go, um, you go to a Mormon church, they're going to talk about Joseph Smith a whole lot more than they're going to talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. But but you know they'll they'll put a facade on things. Um, oh, about fifteen, sixteen years ago, they 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 made the name Jesus Christ in much bigger font on their name tags for their missionaries. Um, you, you go to Temple Square, and they'll have, ignoring the second commandment, but they'll have all kinds of things about Jesus. Um, but what's the real focus? It's it's Joseph Smith right, and the current prophet. What's the real focus in Rome? It's the Pope and Mary. You go, you go into a Catholic store, what's the focus? It's It's Mary. So, I um, one of the things that we try to draw out in the in the video, you know, for 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 Lutherans, to a great extent, the central focus of of the Reformation was uh, justification by grace alone through faith alone. Again, in juxtaposition to uh, works righteousness for the Reformed, that was a life and death issue, but it was a symptom of a deeper problem, which is idolatry. Works righteousness makes perfect sense if your God's not that holy, and if sin's not that bad, huh. if man's not that lost. Um, in Mormonism, works righteousness makes perfect sense if your God is an exalted man who's one among many uh, sort of small G gods who are nothing more than supermen. We don't focus so much on the works righteousness as we try to take them back to the fundamental issue, who is God? And so we deal with... Um, the idolatry of Rome, a hmm. great deal in the video, yeah, uh, which I think was the, the focus of the Reformed branch of the Reformation as well. All right, Pastor Wallace. Well, we are uh, coming up at the top of the program. I just thank you so much for for coming on. Yes, Pastor, that was really good. Hey, my privilege. Uh, the video is free. All our stuff is free. Uh, the Mormon stuff, LDS video. The gay Christian stuff, gaychristian.video, and then this one, of course, romancatholic.video. And if I could just ask for your prayers, um, we also have atheism.video and Quran.video, which don't have anything yet, but we're working on it. So Awesome. Uh, Pastor, uh, before we end the program, can you share the Gospels with our listeners uh, today? Sure. How much time do I have? <laughs> <laughs> however, however long you need. This is this is important. <laughs> yeah, this is the important part of our program, right yes. here. All right. Long story short, um, you need to understand where we came from and the mess that we're in. We we are fallen children of fallen parents. We are we are born under a curse. We're slaves to sin. Um, if you don't understand the problem, then the solution won't make sense. We have, according to According to the scriptures, we have three big problems. We have a heart that's called a heart of stone in Ezekiel 36. Uh, it's called a serpent's heart in Psalms. We have a filthy past. We are justly condemned by a holy God. And we have a poisonous life. We're, we're spiritual lepers. Everything we touch is uh, becomes unclean. Christ comes to solve all three problems. He takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. He nails that heart of stone to the cross. 
he lives the perfect life for us, the great exchange. He, he does everything we were called to do through his active and passive obedience. And having done what we were called to do, he trades places. He bears our sins to the cross and pays their penalty to the uttermost. He drinks to the dregs the cup of the wrath of God that we might drink the cup of blessing. Our sins went with him to the cross that his righteousness might come to us. We're not merely made innocent, we're made righteous. And he takes our poisonous life and nails to, to the cross. And he puts his Holy Spirit in us. Once again, Ezekiel 36. The gospel is not about God helping good people save themselves. It's about life from the dead. It's about the publican beating his breast and daring not raising his eyes to heaven and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Hmm. And, in the, and in the unimaginable grace of God, that one who deserved only judgment receives blessing upon blessing. Forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, and life eternal. In a nutshell, there's the, there's the gospel. Hey, man, thank you so much, Pastor yes, Jason you. Wallace, everybody. Please go to uh, www.romancatholic.video, and you could check out an earnest plea to a Roman Catholic. we got to get you back on the program. It was a joy to have you, brother. Yes, Pastor, it was really oh, good. Anytime. Thank you for that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, that's the last podcast of the year 2018 it's a wrap it's, it's a wrap, wrap. <laughs> um if you enjoyed these podcasts throughout the these years uh these years this year this year uh, <laughs> please again like i said at the beginning of the program like it share it with your mom your dad your brothers your sisters your cats and dogs play <laughs> it during uh christmas uh, some of these episodes um if you would like to support our ministry, please go to www.bridgebookstexas.org. Click the About slash Give tab, and you can find more information uh, about uh, about us through our website. And you can just help uh, support a ministry who is absolutely dedicated to equipping and discipling Christians in their faith and what they believe and, and why they believe it, um, as well as just conferences that we have planned next year and podcasts we have uh, plan next year in different events so as always people we'll see you in 2019 what is your only comfort in life and in death that i am not my own but belong body and soul and life and death to my faithful savior jesus christ and we'll see you in 2019 till next year later